Welcome to the DE Talk podcast. Tune in for dialogue between HR experts to amp up your HR strategies. Don't worry, we'll mix in a few laughs as we know you need it. Welcome. I'm Candy Chambers, and you're listening to another episode of the DE Talk podcast. I think we can all agree on one thing. 2020 will be known as a lost year for so many businesses. As the new year rang in this past January, HR professionals looked forward to new strategic plans and initiatives. However, the landscape quickly shifted as these plans took a backseat to the global pandemic that erupted in March of 2020. Overnight, employers faced mass layoffs, furloughs, and much uncertainty as they clamored to regain their footing. Just as the pandemic was starting to wane, although it's now picking back up, um, protests and riots broke out regarding racial injustices and discrimination that continues to ebb and flow in society. Now that we're nearing the end of 2020, diversity and inclusion planning remain a high priority, and many wonder how to plan for what's next in 2021, what changes are coming on the heels of the election, and what that means for them as federal contractors. Luckily, this topic is one that I am all too familiar with, and I'm happy to have employment law expert John Fox of Fox Wang & Morgan join me today to to discuss all of these things and more. Welcome again to the DE Talk podcast, John. We always have a lot of fun doing this, so I'm going to ask you lots of questions, um, but we love having you here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. This is terrific. Well, good. Um, I'm going to just start right off and drawing on your experience as a political appointee and your and the time that you spent in Washington, D.C., I'd like to actually um, have you maybe explain how the transition will actually work and what the various issues of the day <laughs> are that, that will affect um, Joe Biden's ability to get things accomplished. And, and finally, what, what he is actually planning to do. And let me preface that, that comment with one very important piece um, here we are on November 12th, nine days after the election, and various news media are saying vice president or, or I mean, president-elect, while others are saying not so fast, not so fast. Um, we still have several states that are um, being sued by the, the Trump campaign and, and various issues with uh, the legal um, announcement of of former Vice President Biden as the president-elect. So for all intents and purposes, since we don't really have any true answers right now, let's assume moving forward that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. And, you know, if that does change, then we'll redo another podcast. What do you think? <laughs> okay. Well, this is a very exciting time for everybody in Washington, uh, except for those uh, who maybe on the losing end and are uh, packing their bags. But every presidential candidate has a transition team. They identified the uh, Biden team this week, in fact, led by Ted Kaufman, a former uh, senator from uh, uh, Delaware. He actually replaced Joe Biden when Joe Biden uh, left uh, to uh, become the vice president uh, uh, under Obama. Yeah, he took over. Uh, but he's been uh, a longtime Biden aide and confidant going back 40-plus years. The main job of the transition teams is to pick the approximately 4,000 political appointees who will eventually run the Biden administration, comma, if they get into office. So they are acting like an HR and recruitment uh, firm 
that just pops up and then it disappears uh, almost instantly, as quickly as it arrived. It should be gone uh, by uh, the end of February, uh, maybe earlier. But important to this whole discussion is that there are about 1,200 of what I'll call high-level appointees that will require the advice and consent of the Senate. So the president does not have unilateral authority to just jam in his uh, managers. He's got to go to the Senate uh, and get their advice, their consent. They have to have a committee hearing, has to pass the committee, has to go to the floor of the Senate and be voted on by the Senate. And then that person takes his or her seat in the um, uh, government. Usually, too, about 20 percent, it varies every administration, of course, uh, end up moving from the transition team uh, for the agency that they are responsible to uh, be uh, examining. And they move into that agency and become the undersecretary or become one of the sub-component agency uh, managers running some piece of the uh, institution that they're, uh, the federal agency that they're uh, managing. But here's what Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution says that really puts a lot of power into the Senate and thus makes this question of who owns the Senate very important because 1,200 of these high-level guys have to go through the Senate. The president um, has the power to, quote, nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, as Article 2 goes, they may appoint all officers of the United States, but the Congress may, by law, that it will pass, vest the appointment, the clause goes on to say, of such inferior officers. You just love that uh, old English. Uh, <laughs> when you love to say, I just got promoted to be an inferior officer. <laughs> yes. I'm taking this high-level post as an inferior officer in the federal government. I'm so happy. <laughs> uh, but... Not all of those 4,000 appointees, therefore, go through advice and consent. The Congress exempts, you know, the vast majority of them by law from having to go through the advice and consent process. And so uh, about 1,200 is usually what ends up uh, getting through the, the Senate. But think about the amount of time that takes. Oh, well, there's still some that are waiting for <laughs> approval from the Trump administration. Uh, so. About half of them, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the Clinton administration, which is the fastest transition team in the history of the world, and it was during a time where Republicans and Democrats were actually talking to each other and cooperating, they had close to 100% of their people in office, in their seats, within a month. But certainly by the end of the second month, everybody was in place. And as to OFCCP, everybody will recall that Shirley Wilcher, the OFCCP (laughs) director in the Clinton administration, came in February 14th, three weeks after the president swore swore in. I mean, that's remarkable. Yeah, it really is. That made her, by the way, the longest-serving political appointee. (laughs) Ever. Because she also stayed to the very last day until the Bush administration took over eight years later. Uh, But uh, there's a different process that ensues every time there's a a transition of power like this. The secondary job of the transition team is to meet with the outgoing administration officials and get up to speed on everything that's going on in the agency. You really think that's going to happen this year? Not (laughs) going to happen in this uh, uh, transition. This is going to be very bitter. 
Uh, by statute, the transition team is going to get certain kinds of written materials, but I doubt that in most of the agencies, the Trump guys are just not going to let the, the Biden transition team even come into the building. Well, I heard literally a couple of days ago um, that Joe Biden has said, and he's assuming the presidency, but um, he has said that um, they can remove tra- trespassers, and that was the word he used, trespassers from the White House. So that would be an interesting <laughs> Well, that's going to the addition. question about whether uh, President Trump will concede and leave. Right. Uh, Although I've also heard his some of his team say that he will leave appropriately. Um, so it, it's that's going to be interesting to see. And you'll see differences in approach by agency. So, for example, the Trump guys will cooperate at DOD, Department of Homeland Security, all the security agencies. So here's the uh, Biden-Harris transition team, and it's really a shock, frankly, because uh, it's the old Obama team. It's an Obama reunion. (laughs) And what has happened here is that despite the fact that this is the closest election in history, uh, the Biden-Harris team is proceeding as though they have won a major victory and are going to go very, very uh, far left. This is the same mistake I would suggest to you that the Trump administration made. They had a very, very, very narrow victory, and yet they saw that as some kind of a mandate and took uh, their policy very, very, very conservative. But when you have a very modest victory, you have to move to the middle. And you saw the Congress move, the House of Representatives move tremendously to the middle. The Senate uh, is likely to be continued to be controlled and probably heavily, as we'll see, by Republicans. So uh, there's not a real uh, opportunity to make major change. If you don't have a mandate, you don't have a mandate for change. The uh, Labor Department transition team uh, will look at not just the Labor Department, but also the EEOC uh, and also the NLRB, uh, along with some other uh, federal agencies, most importantly. But let me give you a sense of who some of these people are, and I know you know several of them. So it's going to be led by Chris Liu. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I actually have met Chris. He was, wasn't he the deputy secretary to Tom Perez, right? Correct, the secretary okay. of labor during the Obama administration, yeah. uh, the second half. Right, yeah, and, and interesting that he um, was with Fiscal Note, and I just literally talked with someone from Fiscal Note last week, which is kind of interesting, but I'm curious, John, it says so many of these people are volunteers. What do they do <laughs> for to, to make a living? <laughs> or well, they all have their paid. regular day jobs, but oh, what they they're will. doing okay. is they're volunteering their time. 100% of the transition team is volunteer. Okay, okay. Uh, there may be some people from the campaign that are paid to be the managers, but these are all people that uh, are volunteering their time because they're involved in the party, they're involved in the issues. Uh, didn't you tell me that Chris was like a classmate of, of Barack Obama's in law school or something? Yeah, they went to uh, law school together. Okay, and, interesting. Uh, uh, he became uh, the chief of staff for the then new Senator Obama. Okay. And uh, okay. so they go, they go way back. So I wonder if he's going to lobby for the um, Secretary of 
of labor position. Well, he's in some tough uh, competition because every major union boss is lining up uh, support. And Bernie Sanders uh, thinks that this is the job that he wants. And, of course, uh, having brought a lot of voters to the Democratic Party, uh, he's going to have to have some place in this administration. Yeah. Perhaps. I'll come to that in a moment because it's a very complicated political uh, <laughs> puzzle here in a moment. But the rest of the transition team are uh, unions and uh, uh, radical think tanks. Uh, you've got former uh, Deputy Secretary Seth Harris, uh, who was the Deputy Secretary in the first half of the Obama administration. Uh, you've got uh, the state of California's major political speechwriter for uh, Governor Newsom in California, in Patricia Mascaso. Uh, you've got the major uh, federation of state, county, and municipal employees, heavy union influence uh, throughout all of this. And then a representative of Bernie Sanders's office <laughs> is on the uh, team. Uh, then, a very interesting, signaling a major shakeup in OSHA is Doug Parker, who's the state of California Department of Industrial Relations OSHA chief, that has taken OSHA far beyond federal OSHA, oh, and uh, <laughs> has worried a lot of people in and the uh, safety <laughs> industry. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> then you've got Patricia Smith, another. Uh, solicitor, uh, the solicitor uh, in the Obama administration, and then, uh, as you know, Jenny Yang. Uh, yeah, the head of the EOC, um, or the chair of the EOC when um, Obama was here. So that that will be interesting to see if she'll end up back in a uh, position. I wonder if she, I mean, she left before she needed to from the EOC, so it would be interesting to see if she wants to come back or maybe into another area. So the current political employees, uh, all those appointees at the Labor Department and all the other agencies are now going to be leaving in droves just as fast as they can find jobs. And, of course, there's a race on right now because there's a limited number of jobs that the market can absorb. And there's 4,000 of these guys in a good day leaving, but, in fact, it's about 2,000, 2,500. But any political appointees remaining on roll... Uh, on January 20th, 2021, inaugural day for uh, the president-elect, uh, will lose their jobs at the moment the new president is sworn in, and they have to leave the buildings. They, they, they don't have authorized, uh, their electronic swipe cards go dead. They don't have offices anymore. They're, they're, so they clean out they're a visitor. way before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they clean out. Other than there are some that go down with the ship and are literally walk out with the box in hand uh, <laughs> at the moment the, the new president is being sworn in because maybe they don't have a job and they need the no, paycheck. That's true, yeah. Now, when the last political appointee in some federal agency, like OOCCP, for example, leaves, a senior career employee is always identified to run the agency in an acting capacity because somebody has to be in charge always of every federal agency. It's a federal law. Every time the director leaves the office to go on a trip, just even across uh, state lines, there's a formal written memo that will issue that says so-and-so is acting in the director's physical okay. absence. Okay. Uh, very formal. And uh, when that happens, the acting career employee will report to some political appointee somewhere in the Labor Department. 
because there's no more political leadership in my example uh, at the OCCP, let's assume, when Craig Lean and his two political deputies uh, leave. Uh, but then um, when all the political appointees have left, then the career employees will report to the transition team. And that's why the transition team needs to be ready to start acting as managers and direct the activities of each subcomponent agency. And that's why the transition teams are as big as they are, because in a labor department, my gosh, you've got 400 different statutes, you've got 20 different departments. It's a big place just by itself before you get to the EOC, before you get to yeah. the NLRB. Well, it would probably be a lot easier than if the lead career employee is of the same political party as the transition team coming in. I, you know, I mean, it could be or couldn't be, but... Well, the, the career employees are supposed to be apolitical. Of course, uh, at OCCP, for example, they're always 100% Democrats. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, they act in an apolitical manner and follow the instructions of the political leadership of the day. Now, Patty Davidson, OSCCP's current career employee deputy, will likely become the acting director of OSCCP until Team Biden arrives at I, the I've OSCCP. I've heard wonderful things about Patty Davidson. She came from Wage and Hour, and I've heard she's very smart, very personable, very easy to speak with. I, I've She's one person I have just met briefly, but I don't know her. So she I've heard great things about her. So. Yeah, and the important part there is that she comes from Wage and Hour, which is the rock of Gibraltar within the Labor Department. Exactly. It runs like clockwork. It's been there the longest. It's got good uh, procedures and good managers. And uh, they brought Patty over to stabilize a uh, agency, the OSCCP, that was a little bit uh, rocky and in need of some direction. The OSCCP director has never sat for advice and consent. So this is very important because Team Biden will be able to put somebody in place uh, at the OSCCP almost immediately if they uh, choose to. Usually this is a decision made by the uh, Secretary of Labor. The OSCCP director does not report to the White House. The OSCCP director reports to the Secretary of Labor. So he or she is going to pick of the OSCCP any, director. Any idea who the next OFCCP director would be? No. Uh, you could guess all day long. And I'll tell you, these things happen by fluke and by uh, crook. I was <laughs> headed to be the EEOC general counsel when I went for an interview at the White House. And uh, <laughs> uh, suddenly I, I learned uh, in that interview uh, that uh, one of my clients had just declined the OSCCP directorship, <laughs> and I called her up and said, well, you shouldn't do that. Why don't you take that job, and I'll be your deputy, and that's <laughs> what we did. Uh, but all that happened on the fly, and all of that okay. within 24 hours, and nobody saw that coming. Okay. Uh, things happen <laughs> in the oddest of ways. These are uh, discretionary fill jobs. There will be people that are going to be claiming that they have uh, uh, dues owed to them because they did something wonderful in the campaign. Which is kind of scary, though. You've basically just affirmed that you may or may not even be able to do the job or prepared um, or knowledgeable enough to be effective at the job. That's pretty scary. Oh, yeah. Oh, these people, uh, almost all of them have no substantive knowledge. There are some exceptions, uh, of course. I mean, Jenny Yang is going to know a lot about uh, the EOC and going to know a lot about discrimination law as, as one example. <clears throat> but this 
this point that the OSCCP director is not historically subject to advice and consent becomes, uh, becomes very important because if the Republicans win 51 or more Senate seats following the two January 5th, 2021 Senate uh, race runoffs in Georgia, which are set to occur, uh, the Republicans can stop the seating uh, of all of these advice and consent managers. Let's just look at the numbers. The current Senate tally as we sit here today is 50 Republican senators, 46 Democrats, two independents who caucus with the Democrats, so the Democrats can depend on 48 votes, but they've got to get to 50. Uh, they've got to get to 50 because uh, if they have a tie at 50-50, then the vice president, uh, in this case uh, Kamala Harris, would cast the tie-breaking vote and thus the Biden agenda could get through the Senate. But with the Republicans owning 50 seats already, they need only one more of those two Georgia uh, uh, races. That's, that's moving in a Republican uh, win in that, in that state. So Yeah, it's a heavy lean towards both seats going to the Republicans as we sit here today. But, uh, Candy, I'm going to tell you, this is going to be the most expensive Senate races in the history of the world. <laughs> I would not be surprised if you saw a quarter of a billion dollars oh with a B gosh. spent on those two races because the Senate rides on those two races. Yeah. This is real That's money. True. Everybody uh, is going to be in. How are they doing this runoff? Do you even know? I mean, are they having another election? Is that yeah, they're having another election. Okay, they are. Okay. Yeah, so you have two senators that are incumbents who are Which Republicans. Which is weird. And, yeah, That's very same. unusual. <laughs> it's not designed to occur that way. They have rotating assignments and terms to avoid this so, very yeah, exactly. phenomenon. Yeah. But this phenomenon has happened in Georgia because uh, Kelly Loeffler, the incumbent for one of the two seats, filled a vacant position. When you have a vacancy in a senatorial uh, uh, position under the 12th Amendment, the governor of the states are allowed to appoint or not appoint a replacement for that senator until the next election. Okay. So in this case, the Republican governor of Georgia a appointed a Republican, Kelly Loeffler, for the remaining almost two years of one term. And then the other Senate seat just happened to come up in its normal rotation for its every six-year uh, uh, vote. So they're both up at the same time, and uh, Kelly Loeffler is going to have a really tough fight against uh, a, an African-American preacher by the name of Raphael Warnock, who looks very, very impressive, and he got a lot of votes, and he outvoted her, but neither one got enough to uh, proceed to win the election, so hence the runoff. In Georgia, you have to get more than 50% of the vote, uh, even if you are... 49% and your opponent's 38%, uh, wow. you can't take the seat. You've got uh, to get more than 50%. So then why are they assuming that it's going to fare Republican when he actually had more votes? Because she was running against uh, other people who are oh, no longer oh, there, oh, particularly libertarians. Okay, that are swaying and the what vote. happens okay. is that libertarians siphon off votes from the Republican side of the, okay. uh, the tally and then when the libertarians drop out, as they do here in a runoff, they take the top two. Okay, uh, Okay. so it'll be interesting to see what so happens. So all the libertarian votes should go, by history, to the Republican. Interesting. Uh, the, um, 
Other thing that uh, raises some wrinkles for uh, both Democrats and Republicans, though, is that the two left-of-center independents, Bernie Sanders is one, and independent from Vermont. Now, remember that. That's going to be important in a moment. They typically caucus with the Democrats, but not always. On certain issues, they caucus and vote with the Republicans. That's why they're independent. (laughs) But then you have Senator Collins, uh, who won Mm -hmm. a surprise come-from-behind victory as the uh, senator from Maine, Republican, and she votes with the Democrats from time to time. In fact, she voted against, she's an incumbent, and she voted against uh, Amy Barrett for the Supreme Court. She was the lone dissenter in the Republicans. So if the Democrats picked up one of the two Georgia seats, with the addition of the two independents and getting occasionally Collins would get Democrats to 50 votes. Uh, That's 46 Democrats, two independents, one from Georgia plus Collins. Uh, That would get them to 50, which would get them to Kamala Harris, then casting the, the tiebreaker and passing whatever legislation. But that's a tough way to win. <laughs> that's a long, yeah. tough road to hoe. Uh, but if here's another wrinkle. Bernie Sanders urgently wants the Secretary of Labor job, and he's calling in all of his chips on this right now as we speak. If he resigns his Senate seat, what's going to happen? Under the 12th Amendment, the governor of Vermont, Vermont who's what? A Republican is presumably going to appoint a Republican senator to replace him until the next election two years from now in 2022. That could give Republicans (laughs) then 53 Senate seats if everything broke perfectly for them. 50 currently already there, ready to be seated January 4th when the new Congress uh, comes to the two Georgia runoffs. The two Georgia plus Bernie's seat, and that gets you to 53. That's very comfortable. You could let Collins go vote with the Democrats uh, periodically, and it would still be fine from a Republican point of view. But then he would have a tough time in getting his political appointees that need advice and consent push through. Yeah, that's one of the two bad things that happens to Biden if the Senate goes Republican. First, Biden cannot force legislation through the Senate. Uh, He just won't have the votes. He's going to have to bargain with Republicans who can stop any legislation that he proposes. He will either have to come to the middle or do what President Obama did. Start writing executive orders right and left. You try to force things that you can through the executive branch, because the president is the chief executive officer of the executive branch of government. So he can control his executive branch agencies, but what power do they have? They can't issue uh, rules uh, without uh, going through a process, and uh, that can get dicey, and it takes a long time, years, But as you say, the other real problem is that Biden uh, will not be able to easily get his uh, political appointees approved in a timely manner. Let me just review the bidding for you. Note that the delays that the Democrats were able to force on President Trump, even though the Republicans controlled the Senate for the last six years uh, and during the entire period of time that the Trump administration was in office, even with Republican control of the Senate, the Democrats were able to uh, deny over 700 federal government Trump nominees uh, who needed to go through advice and consent to take their jobs. They've only had half of their political high-level appointees in place for the last four years. EEOC commissioners, 
it took 18 months to confirm yeah. and seat three of them. And that all just happened very recently. Uh, you, how about the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, a very important key civil rights post? It took over a year for Trump to get that guy seated. Uh, so with a, Senator McConnell being actively in opposition, if that's what happens uh, with the Biden uh, advice and consent nominees, he can keep these guys back for two years if he wants to very easily through uh, no expenditure of time or money, political capital on his part. That's just part of his ownership and right as the balancing of powers mm -hmm. between the executive branch and uh, the uh, executive uh, and the legislative branch. But here's the punchline for OSCCP. If the Senate is 51 or 51-plus Republicans next year, Biden will either have to scale back his political agenda by moving to the middle, or he's going to have to drive a very aggressive uh, action, as President Obama did for the last two years of his pre presidency when he had a Republican Senate for the first time during his uh, President Obama's uh, tenure. In either event, OSCCP is absolutely going to be the tip of the spear in Team Biden's civil rights agenda because he can control it and he can drive things forward without the Senate. And this becomes extremely important because you'll find that the EEOC will not be able to do much at all uh, for reasons that we'll explain in, uh, further in a moment. Uh, but um, the core of the uh, Biden agenda is worker issues and civil rights issues. And uh, the only way they're going to get that done on the civil rights side is through the OOCCP. So, so it's going to be ground zero. So interesting. And I really wasn't going to get into this today, but the new MOU with the EOC and the OFCCP and the Department of Justice. I wonder if they were thinking along these lines because now OFCCP is taking on complaint supposedly taking on dual filed complaints and complaint um, authorization or authorization to investigate complaints, let's put it that way. And with what you just described, the EOC is going to be kind of stuck in limbo land and this would give the opportunity for Biden to have that push through. Well, um, watch this. The civil rights Well, let's look focus. at a, a, a number of the different uh, titles. What about OSHA? So to get the OSHA Assistant Secretary of Labor in place, that's always been subject to advice and consent. So Biden's going to have to go through the Senate to get his OSHA guy in, Mr. Parker from California, that they right. are apparently lining up to take OSHA in a different direction. But he's not going to be there for two years if the Republicans uh, control the Senate. Wage and hour. The wage and hour administrator is subject historically to advice and consent. That person is not going to be there. So we don't have to expect the independent contractor <laughs> joint employment <laughs> argument to come back and haunt us at least for a few more years, Well, right? the Secretary of Labor's <laughs> office can start driving a lot of that. Yeah, but, but the wage uh, and hour has to put that through. It's going to be a very slow, <laughs> tedious process, and you won't have your champion there, your top manager, to drive things. What about the Department of Justice? Well, you can't get the Assistant Attorney General confirmed. Uh, that guy won't take his or her seat for two years at least. Well, that's why I'm saying if he gets the right person at the OFCCP, they could push part of that civil rights focus forward. But there's going to be limitations. You raised the memorandum of understanding with the EOC and the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice. Well, that document says that uh, to be amended, uh, all three parties have to amend it. 
Well, let's look at the EOC. Well, you've got five commissioners now recently seated, and uh, it's a bipartisan commission, so there are three Republicans currently and two Democrats. The way it works is that the president gets the, to identify the chair of the commission. That's the president's prerogative. And they always identify somebody of their party uh, as the chair. Uh, but then um, they, the president can have as many as three, but there has to be an available term. So if you look at the uh, chart now, what you would see <laughs> is that Jocelyn Samuels, a commissioner, a Democrat, is going to be the first one to be out of a job next July 1st, 2021. And she's going to have to go back through advice and consent to the Senate. And of course, if the Senate is Republican, they're going to put her on a slow boat uh, going nowhere. (laughs) And she will have a legal entitlement to stay there through the end of the year, even though her term expires July 1st. That's a rule that if you don't have a replacement... They stay until the, the end of the Could they year make her term. chair and give her... Yes, but they extent. wouldn't okay. because she's going to be a person without a country come July 1st, 2021. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They, she would still have to be... They could make yet. her the chair, yeah. but realize that she's only going to be there for right, another... Right, Until December 31st, 2021. What they would Charlotte probably Burroughs. do is make Charlotte Burroughs, the other Democrat, who doesn't come up... Uh, for um, her term until July 1st, 2023. She's also an incumbent. She's been there a while. So that makes more sense. She's the most uh, vocal, too, about various things. But what's going to happen is that uh, it's not going to be until the end of 2022, December 31st, 2022, before President Biden can get control of the EOC if there's a Senate uh, that doesn't Assuming want to cooperate he does. <laughs> I mean, gosh, this could all be... <laughs> what about the NLRB? <clears throat> Same story. Right now, you there's a five uh, members uh, authorized for the NLRB. There's only four in place today, three Republicans, one Democrat. And uh, the, the first moment in time that uh, uh, President uh, Biden, if he becomes the president, could... Uh, gain control of the NLRB, very important to the uh, agenda for uh, the Democrats, is going to be when two of these guys leave. And for that to happen, uh, it's going to be the end of 2022. This situation with the uh, Senate is part of the balance of power that our forefathers uh, very thoughtfully laid down in the Constitution because of their great fear of centralized, tyrannical control by kings, as you'll recall. Uh, The balancing of power just works across uh, all agencies and within the federal government uh, and within the legislative branch as well because the House of Representatives have certain prerogatives different from the Senate. So it's a very complex uh, mixture. Uh, But the question is going to be, where is President Biden going to go in fact? Uh, when he uh, loses the Senate, if he does. Uh, It's going to be a lot more head bashing like we've seen for the last four years, or else he's going to make a radical turn uh, from where these transition teams are and say, guys, we're going to have to cut uh, sail here and we're going to have to go to the middle and negotiate with the Republicans and do things that we probably wouldn't want to do, but we have to compromise. You know, I think it's 
going to be a situation where even if they do tend to come to the middle, it's going to be provide the appearance that they're going completely left because with the Trump administration, he has done he has made some decisions. I, I was just thinking about Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, who is an educator and a lot of commentary that I see is, well, what's going to happen with education? What's going to happen with Betsy DeVos? You know, she'll be gone. Who's going to? And I think people will see the total opposite, but it will probably be just more of coming to the middle. But it's because a lot of people don't care for Betsy DeVos, you know, so it's going to be an interesting um, way for him to move forward. Well, it's complicated, too, because Biden's a very nice guy, and he's very experienced in the Senate. He's been there a long time. The Senate is very effete and very polite historically, and uh, he's going to want to try to build compromise. But he's got to keep his base happy. Exactly. And he's got to keep his eye, as do the Republicans, on the fact that in two years it could all change because there will be another one-third of the Senate up for re-election in 2022. And so the whole uh, roll of the dice could change the, the game board here. So they've got to not lose the opportunity to advance their political agendas. Let me tell you some of the things Biden can control, even with a Republican Senate. And a lot of this you're going to see right through the affirmative action uh, eyes of OSCCP. Uh, you could see... Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Candy, executive orders, and I, I guarantee you, you're going to see them. You'll see the return of the blacklisting executive order <laughs> oh, that <geez>. traumatized <laughs> government contractors. Oh, no. That you would be blacklisted if you had certain kinds of, of labor practices that were uh, not appropriate relative to the executive order. Oh, I went to a listening session at the White House about that um, with Valerie, was it Jarrett? Jared, I, I mean, and Tom Perez was there. I mean, that was, yikes. I mean, and there were some some strong proponents of that. This and, is how they'll get the labor agenda through is yeah, by executive order yeah. on government contractors. It's not all employers, but it's about 80% of the companies that count. So yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to be right in the middle of a freight train coming our way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. They'll rescind absolutely 13, Executive Order 1395 on D&I training yeah. that uh, uh, President Trump uh, passed. Because you can also legislate by stopping things, by rescission. Right, yeah, within uh, I'm what, sure the X number of days or something. At great trepidation to uh, losing votes, particularly with uh, religiously inclined Democratic voters and Baptists and Catholics, I Strongly suspect uh, President uh, Biden will rescind both of the Trump executive orders that had heavily advanced religious freedoms, uh, but really uh, upset a lot of people. Uh, Nonetheless, that's a very hot issue on both sides of the the aisle. Let me just end with uh, a recollection of what the Democratic Party platform says (laughs) about where they want to take this uh, incoming Biden administration. If you put in your browser 2020 Democratic Party platform, a 90-page-plus document would pop up. And uh, let me give you some of the highlights uh, that come from it. Protecting LGBTQ and health. There's a real emphasis not on protecting LGBTQ because that's now been taken care of in some part, not totally, uh, by the Supreme Court's Bostock decision. Uh, But um, the health issues... Uh, are uh, what employers are going to hear about. Quote, 
We will also take action to guarantee that LGBTQ plus people and those living with HIV AIDS have full access to needed health care and resources, including by requiring that federal health plans provide coverage for HIV AIDS testing and treatment and HIV prevention medications like PREP and PEP, gender confirmation surgery, and hormone therapy. Now, gender confirmation surgery is usually booked at about $40,000 a person. You know, I honestly, I, I used to work for a life insurance company, and we had a health insurance side of our business, and maybe they can put they can force those requirements through in the Affordable Health Care Act, but for other independent Anthem, United Healthcare, Aetna, I don't know how they can force that. Well, they'll try to do it through HHS. Okay. And they'll try to, yeah. try to do it through government contractors. Wow. I always worried years ago when President Bush, the son, saw the ability to control things because you're a federal contractor and make it part of the contract. You have to make the widget look like this, and your labor policies have to look like this. And you'll recall that he issued, uh, and this kind of started the uh, parade, uh, he issued the Beck executive order saying that government (laughs) contractors had to post a certain notice that had nothing to do with affirmative action. Oh, I remember that. Had nothing to do with the EEO. Everybody laughed about the Beck poster and the non-Beck poster. (laughs) Right. But then... The Obama team, when they realized they could only really get things forward through executive order, started seizing on executive orders with government contractors because they've got control of them. Because they've got, uh, you want the money? Here's here's the the rules of engagement that you've got to play with. Well, you know, I mean, I, I want to be clear. I think it's important for people with HIV and AIDS to have the medication they need. I think it's important that, you know, people, especially you know, children, people with pre-existing conditions. Don't lose coverage, you know, but but to, and, and gender reassignment surgery, if, if that's what someone needs and it's only a $40,000 surgery, I mean, you could have somebody that has an open heart surgery and you're going to pay in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. But forcing it through is going to be a, a, a an interesting challenge, I believe. Well, here's going to be a head-on collision with the law and uh, with uh, where most government contractors are. Another part, and I'm going to quote from the 2020 Democratic Party platform, Democrats recognize that race-neutral policies are not sufficient to rectify race-based disparities. We will take a comprehensive approach to embed racial justice in every element of our governing agenda, including in jobs and jobs creation, etc. So that's saying race-neutral solutions uh, are not sufficient. So they're talking about quotas in employment. And, uh, you know, OCCP, even before this, has long been accused of driving quota uh, decision-making. I've never thought that that was particularly true, if people understand the true distinction between goals and quotas. And there is a distinction. And, indeed, there was a time that a case went to the Supreme Court where a hard, cold-on-the-docks quota was described by the federal judge as a goal and the Chamber of Commerce came to me and asked me to write a, a amicus curiae brief, a friend of the court brief in the Supreme Court, to help distinguish it. So I did that. And Justice O'Connor, actually, in that opinion involving uh, uh, Local 57 in, in New York, picked up on that distinction and embedded it in her uh, opinion. 
explaining that there is a difference between goals and quotas. But uh, we've long heard criticism that OSCCP converts a goal into a quota oh, and forces contractors to just hire by the numbers. So I, I you're going to see you what, this come I, back. You know what? I, I am just speaking from a, a woman's standpoint. I don't really know anyone that would like to have a job because they are the right gender, the right, the right race, the right ethnicity, the right protected class, basically. I, I, people that are truly qualified for their jobs don't want to have the job given to them as a favor. You know, they want to qualify for that job. So I, I yikes, that's going to be an interesting Well, let me give you movement. two last ones. Quote, we will take aggressive action to end pay inequality, including by increasing penalties against companies that discriminate against women and passing the Paycheck Fairness Act. Now, obviously, the Paycheck Fairness Act is going to go nowhere if there is a Republican uh, uh, Senate. Senate. And assuming that these guys are not going to come to the middle and start compromising on things. I mean, I, I, I think one of the messages out of this election, too, for both parties was the country's tired of bickering and they're tired of uh, head knocking. And rather, they're, uh, I think, very much hoping that these uh, parties are going to come together. But this transition team is a very bad start towards compromise, I must say. They're very uh, talented and uh, highly um, experienced uh, people, but these are people that are not accustomed to compromising and are uh, going to have a very aggressive agenda. The last thing I would uh, pluck out of the 2020 Democratic Party platform that relates to employment and particularly to OCCP we will rigorous, rigorously enforce non-discrimination protections for people with disabilities in health care, employment, education, and housing, and ensure equal access to the ballot box. <laughs> there is a vein of discussion that runs through the entire document, the, the entire platform, that has a lot of concern that someone is trying to dilute the Americans with Disabilities Act. I have not been aware of that myself. I, yeah, I, and I would hate to see that. I would and, hate to and see that. And obviously the OCCP is a major player through its uh, in the disability world with its Section 503 authority. Mm -hmm. And I have not seen a great deal of controversy about the way they have proceeded. I, I think everybody thinks things they're are, doing just fine there. Yeah, and I think things are really getting better, certainly long a long way from where it needs to be, but it is getting better. So. And government contractors are uh, really doing a lot of accommodations and a lot of creative things. And certainly I know at DE you've got a lot of programs and training around that that is being very, very well received. So mm -hmm. I, I think nothing's going to happen different in the 503 program. It'll just keep doing what it's been doing. Well, I just hope that we keep seeing more people with disabilities finding employment. I, I mean, that's bottom line, what, what Craig Lean has pushed forward, what ODEP is pushing, you know, Earn and Pete and all of the other agencies, you know, Jan. I mean, they're all helping people with disabilities find, find work. And the unfortunate part there is that if you look at the unemployment numbers, the employment of individuals with disabilities always lags oh, every always. other protected group that you can identify. You're exactly right. And and I love the, the story, and, and our Recruit Rooster team has started doing accessibility audits and they built accessible career websites. And the big difficulty there is if a person with a disability needs an accommodation or an accessible website and is in competition for a job with a person who does not have a disability, 
by the time that person gets the accommodation that they need, the other person's already been interviewed because it takes time to get that accommodation. And so it's why I know we've been trying to push through our membership and, and Craig Lean is pushing accessibility, 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 because you need to give equal rights to all people looking for jobs. So. Well, the final word for me is that I think people used to scoff at accessible websites, but that's a, a thing whose time has come. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Well, John, I want to thank you again for joining me today. It's always a pleasure uh, picking your brain, <laughs> and um, it's always good for everyone to learn how um, the legislation works together and, and to get that understanding. I remember jokingly saying last year when we did this podcast that we would encounter some surprises along the way, I'm sure, and um, with this year being an election year, boy, was I really <laughs> correct, but spot in the on. worst way. <laughs> I was spot on. It's not one of those areas I really wish I would have been so spot on. Um, to our, our listeners, if you'd like to glean more information from our DE compliance experts, you can subscribe to receive, receive our weekly blog, the OFCCP Week in Review, by, by visiting directemployers.org slash subscribe. It's free. We have thousands and thousands of, of readers and even Congress now is signing up for it, which is kind of scary on the one hand. Well, it's become the main channel of everything OOCCP communication. Yeah, well, we have, I, I, I am shocked when I see how many people just from the Department of Labor that, that read it and Department of Defense. And, and when I saw Congress, I was like, yikes. Well, the real <laughs> bonus there, too, is that you not only get a story that explains crisply what's at issue, but you have embedded links to all the underlying all the appropriate documents. government documents, yep. the rule, the directive, the memo, the letter, whatever it may be. Yep, and, and it comes out Monday at 3 o'clock Eastern Standard Time routinely um, via text or email. So it's free. I, I you know it's, it's one of those things that everything that happened the prior week is in there. So um, we you know, update you on everything you need to know as a contractor and, and prepare you for future legislation, executive orders, and, and more. So I would recommend that you um, sign up for that at um, any time. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the DE Talk podcast. Stay connected with Direct Employers on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive notifications of new episodes each month.